You're listening to A Drive-Along Story by Ivan Coyote and Sarah McDougall, created for Nakai Theater's 2021 Pivot Festival. Some of the guiding directions are spoken quickly, and it is recommended that you have a printed map of this drive-along's route on hand while you're driving, and that you have a general sense of the route before you begin. Be safe and enjoy. Okay, first things first. Go get yourself a coffee at Midnight Sun if it's open right now. Make sure to say hi to Katya for me. If you're not a jerk to her, she might even put your coffee on my tab for you. No promises, though. Take a right and head north up Mountain View Drive. As you drive past the Walmart on your left, I want you to imagine that all of this land used to be a marsh. That when I was growing up, this road never existed. From where the home hardware is right now, all the way up to Porter Creek, all that chip seal and the traffic lights used to be a marshland, full of foxes and coyotes and birds and scattered with little squatter shacks. Then there was just a few streets of the back end of the industrial section of town that you could only access from the turnoff halfway up the two mile hill. And just after you passed the road that leads up to the old village and drove up the hill to the Takini trailer park and the turnoff for the old dump road, after that, it was all just bush. Scruffy pine trees and motorcycle trails and sandy dirt and kinnikinick bushes and cranberry patches. We'd spend all day on those trails and in that bush in the summer, me and my sister and sometimes a cousin or three and the Jones kids or the DeHart sisters and the Celez girls and maybe one of the Seventh-day Adventist kids if their mom let them out to play with the Catholics and the other heathens. We would ride our bikes and bring two sweet juice boxes and peanut butter and jam sandwiches and paper bags from the Super A Foods and it would really feel like you had left civilization behind you somewhere and you were out there foraging and adventuring on your own with nobody as witness except chittering squirrels and the wind. We would build forts and have acorn wars and chew wads of pine sap until Sherry Coxford lost a filling that one time and we had to knock it off because no one was made of money. When you get to the lights at the top of the hill there, with Takini Trailer Park on your right, and the Yukon College up on the top of the hill to your left. Pause this tape for about three and a half minutes until you get all the way up to Porter Creek. During those three minutes, think about this. There used to be no Mountain View Drive, no giant traffic circle, no whistle bend.
When you get to the top of Mountain View, hang a left on 12th Avenue, and then take your first left off 12th onto Hemlock Street. Go to the end of the block and look up and to the right, just before the street doglegs left. Eleven o three Hemlock Street. My dad built this house in 1969 on a lot that cost $485. My mom paid for it with money she got when her position at work was reclassified and she got a chunk of back pay. She was 19, about to turn 20. My dad was 21 and I was two or three days old when we moved in. The house was framed up and most of the drywall was hung upstairs but the floors were still plywood and the basement was just an empty concrete box. I loved the smell of it down there. My dad was working up in a mining camp in the NWT welding when I was really little. He would be gone for six weeks, I think, and then back for ten days. He would come home with a beard and then leave clean-shaven after his days off. He would work on the house constantly when he was home from camp, night and day. I would go to bed and wake up and there would be a new wall framed up or a pine sap smelling set of stairs where the ladder down to the basement used to be. I asked my mom when the house on Hemlock Street was finally finished and she said, ah, nearly ten years later, about three days before we moved out into the new house on Grove Street. You can turn around at the end of the cul-de-sac there where they constructed that big wall at the end of the street after they punched down all that bush and built Mountain View. Pull a U-turn and head back to 12th Avenue and then hang a left again and go west. Just after the hump on 12th, hang a right onto Grove Street and halfway down the block on your left, check out 1203 Grove Street. My dad built this house too. He was a better carpenter by then and I think it shows from outside to this day. He bought the plans from an ad he saw in the back of the White Horse Star, I think the story goes. He wanted something different than all of the neighbors. We moved in there on rendezvous weekend of 1977. I was eight years old. The Marshwas lived in a little house just to the right of it, on the corner, with the fence painted all different colors. Mr. Marshwa had subdivided his big lot and sold half of it to my dad in a private sale. My mom thinks it was ten or eleven thousand bucks by then, but she doesn't remember exactly. Mr. Marshwa worked for White Pass and he used to bring home the remains of cans of paint, all different colors, and that is why they had what everyone called the rainbow fence even though it wasn't really a rainbow. Just a fence painted yellow, orange, pink, white, and brown, if I remember it right. My Uncle Rob just drove by there today to check it out, and he says the Marshawas fence is now painted a nice, uniform, British racing green.
stop here for a bit. Don't worry, there's probably no traffic behind you. Look straight ahead to the little house staring back at you from the end of this street. That was where the Moffat family lived. When I was a kid, I kind of had a kid crush on John Moffat, the youngest of the three brothers that lived in that house. He was a couple of years older than me, but he had light brown feathered hair, and he was always nice to the younger kids on the block. One time we were playing street hockey with a frozen tennis ball, and someone took a slap shot, and it went high over Tracy McCravich's head and buried itself in the snow on the Moffat's roof. John Moffat came out with his Sorel boots not laced up and dragged his dad's ladder out of the garage and rescued our tennis ball, and then he jumped in his mom's tercel and took off and came back about a half an hour later with a whole bag of neon orange actual street hockey balls and gave them to us for keeps. He must have gone to Hogan's on Main Street, because that was way before we had a Canadian tire. In late November of 1986, a couple of months after I turned 17, John Moffat dropped acid with a couple of his buddies and went to the bar at the Klondike Inn. The K.I., we called it. He was sitting drinking draft beer with his friends and listening to a cover band, and he got up to go to the bathroom, story goes, and he never came back. When last call came, everybody realized that his parka was draped over the back of his chair, his keys were on the table, and his car was still in the parking lot. It was snowing, so all footprints and tracks were quickly disappeared by all that white and silence. John Moffat was never seen again. They found his remains scattered by animals around what may or may not have been a shallow grave on the other side of the Yukon River nine years later. The circumstances surrounding his disappearance and the cause of his death remain unknown to this day. None of us had ever known anyone who had just disappeared like that. We knew people who died in car crashes on the highway, who drowned in boating mishaps or industrial accidents or got lost on a hunting trip or froze to death or shot themselves in lonely cabins. We knew about the dangers of hitchhiking and drinking yourself to death and cancer, but no one we actually knew had just got up from the table at the bar downtown and never came back. Every summer, all we did at night was ride our 10-speed bikes in a ragged gang around Porter Creek and do bored teenager stuff. We smoked pilfered cigarettes and gossiped. We went to Super A or the tiny convenience store in that little Porter Creek strip mall or Centennial Market and bought Tootsie Rolls and salt and vinegar chips and Dr. Peppers. We hitchhiked downtown and went to the Yukon Theater and watched the same movie three or four times until a new one finally came to town. We had no cell phones or adult supervision and the midnight sun never really set all the way, even hours past our curfews. The only real things we had been warned to watch out for were bears and dudes who drove vans with no windows. Until John Moffat disappeared. It was easy to be scared of so many other things after that happened, mostly because he was one of us, and we never did find out what happened to him. Okay. Turn a right now at the end of Grove Street, and then follow the road when it turns left. It will turn into Holly Street, drive almost exactly one kilometer along Holly Street, and then hang a right. There is a little clearing. 
You can park here and walk down the trail a little, if you want, and see Hidden Lake. If you really want to get into the mindset of a 17-year-old kid who grew up in Porter Creek in the 80s, pause this right now and put on that song Life in a Northern Town by Dream Academy and hot knife three or four nugs of black hash with your mom's silverware and a blue propane torch while standing outside with your parka unzipped next to a white Toyota pickup with rust blossoms over the rear wheel wells and the doors open so you can hear the tunes. Shotgun a can of Molson Canadian and apply cherry lip balm, a squeeze of Visine and then cram four people back into the cab of the truck and go to the Porter Creek Mall for a bag of chips. Anyways... Where was I? Okay. Head back out of the clearing and turn right onto Holly. At the top of the hill, turn left onto Juan Road, and then right, pretty much immediately, onto Sycamore Street. If there is still a little convenience store there in the strip mall, go get yourself a Tootsie Roll in honor of tradition, and then continue up Sycamore Street. See the little sign for Baranoff Trailer Park? Pull over. I got a little story for you. Back in that first winter we lived in the new house on Grove Street, I was home alone one night. I don't remember where my sister was, maybe at a sleepover party or something. Both of my parents were working late. A movie came on the television called The Boy Who Cried Werewolf. It was a pretty shitty horror flick about a little boy whose dad was a werewolf. One full moon, the werewolf killed a bunch of teenagers who were partying in an RV, and then he stole all of their heads. So the next full moon, the little boy's mom tells him to go down to the basement and tell his dad dinner was ready, and the boy walked in on his dad, the werewolf, eating the missing heads in the basement, and the little boy tried to warn everyone, but no one would believe him, and so forth. I don't remember how the story ends because I was so terrified, I think I blotted it out. My mom finally came home with a carload of groceries and I was so scared I was frozen in the easy chair and I, I, I couldn't even get up and go unlock the front door for her and help her carry the groceries in and I remember she was really pissed at me about that. Anyway, that shitty movie left some serious residue in my head and to this day I'm freaked out about werewolves. I still can't even watch the video for Thriller. This one time when I was about 14, I was babysitting three brats in a trailer in the trailer park there, and it was like a Tuesday night or something. So my mom said to tell the lady I had to be home by 10 or 11 at the latest because it was a school night. Sure, no problem, the single mother said on her way out the door and then didn't appear again until about 2.30 in the morning. I had fallen asleep on the brown plaid couch that smelled like corn chips and she came home pretty drunk and said her boyfriend Steve was outside in the blue truck and he could give me a lift home since she was a little late. Steve's truck had giant knobby tires and running lights that blinded me as I approached. I climbed up onto the running boards and into the cab and leaned way over to drag the passenger door closed. Then I turned and looked at Steve. He was the hairiest dude I had ever seen in my life, with a giant halo of unbrushed black curls and a bushy beard and two brown eyes glinting under fuzzy eyebrows. His hands were looming on the leather-wrapped steering wheel covered in dark fur. 
I flew out of the truck, hit the ground, already running, slid in my Reebok high tops around the corner and bolted for home. I could hear Steve's giant tire squeaking in the snow behind me as he turned the truck around to follow me, and I switched my legs and feet into hyperspeed. I don't think the bottoms of my sneakers even really touched the snow-covered ground as I booted it through the bush, down the hill, and sprinted at top speed up the skidoo trail that ran along beside Holly Street. Too scared to even look back to see if Steve was still following me. When I got home, I flew through the carport and the automatic light came on. My mom was waiting up, worried about where I was, and she had gotten up off the couch to open the front door for me. I peeled through that door so fast I knocked her totally over backwards and fell on top of her in the boot room, my legs all rubber and my lungs on fire. And I never babysat in the Baranoff trailer park ever again. Not for a million bucks, I said places full of werewolves, if you ask me. Just a little note here to say that you need to keep in mind that growing up in Whitehorse meant that you never thought about, cared about, learned about, or knew the actual names of most of the streets of your hometown. Back then, I would have said, hang a right just past the Lowry's place, like you're heading to the Stamagowan Arena, and the trailer park there didn't have a name as far as any of us knew. The Stan McGowan Arena isn't there anymore. And I just had to check on Google Maps to find the name of Sycamore Street. Okay. Put it in gear again and keep driving up Sycamore Street. Pass the turnoff to Stacy Henley's parents' place and keep going until the road turns into a T and hang a left on McDonald. Follow it around the corner right, and when you get to the second T, turn left again. You are now deep in the Porter Creek industrial section, and this was my other childhood stomping grounds. In the summer, everywhere smelled like used oil and aluminum shavings and ozone, and you knew not to stare at the blue flash of arc welders or you could burn your retinas. You knew to get out of the way of semi-trucks and dump trucks and cranes and front-end loaders. There were no crosswalks or streetlights back then, and there still aren't now. Keep driving past Newway Crushing on your left and stop for a second there when Poplar Street juts off to the right. There never used to be a gate here or a private property sign and everybody called this Hector Lang's lot. This is where my dad rented his first shop and built his second bigger shop that he worked in until he retired and sold most of his tools. There was a grease-stained gang of us in the 70s. All the welders' daughters and mechanics' sons and miners' kids who used to play in and on and around all the idle heavy equipment and discarded dump trucks and expired and empty school buses and rusting muscle cars in the junkyard. It was super fun and excellently dangerous. And I would do it all over again in a hot minute, but no one these days would ever allow that to happen. I think it's safe to say, no pun intended, that the days of letting your children play alone all day on giant, rusty metal objects full of gasoline and sharp edges are in the rearview mirror. I guess us old school Yukon kids, we were just born lucky. Okay. Turn left here. Then take a shallow right when McDonald Road kind of merges with the tail end of Centennial Street and stop at the stop sign when you get to the Alaska Highway. 
Take a left, going south there. And then take your second right, up the hill, to Trails North Truck Stop. Park right out front and head into the cafe, and if you are lucky, the soup special will be beef vegetable. Have that and a grilled cheese sandwich on brown bread and a cup of bottomless coffee. Tip your waitress, because she's probably had a rough last couple of years. And this concludes this episode of This Used To Be. Please check back here next week for our next episode entitled My Aunt Nora Says I'm Chronically Nostalgic. This concludes Ivan Coyote's drive-along story. If you enjoyed this experience, be sure to try the other two drive-alongs in this series by Local Boy and Christine Genier. Nakai Theatre and the Pivot Festival are supported by many sponsors, partners, and funders. Please visit our website, nakaitheatre.com, for a full list of all who have made this festival possible and for more information on other Pivot events. Thanks for listening.